0: Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our morning service, Sunday, 16th of February, 2020. This morning we are joined by Henry Capper, who takes his reading from James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and brings us a message entitled, Rich Men, Poor Man. And as you do so, can you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, open that up to The New Testament toward the end and to the letter of James and James chapter two. We'll be looking at this this opening section that's probably marked up marked out in your your Bibles. First thirteen verses of James chapter two. Let's take time to to read these 13 verses in James chapter 2. And this is the word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but feels in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said... Do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we know God will bless the public reading of his word this morning. It could happen in any church. No matter how big or small, how gracious, compassionate, it could happen in any church. He walks into the morning worship service. Immediately, everyone notices who it is. He's quickly giving a a warm welcome. Everyone smiles politely at him. And people begin to move down the row and offer him a seat. You hear one person whispering behind you to to another, Do you know who that is? He's a pretty big deal. He, He was in the papers last week, actually. Yet at the same time, Mr. Jemison has wandered in via the side entrance of the church. He's a regular of the church. He's he's been a member for years. He lives just around the corner, lives in one of the council houses, and he's just recently retired. He receives a few subtle nods, acknowledging his, his presence, and quickly he, he takes his seat at the back of the church. He's been a church and this church for years. And though people see him each week, every Sunday, they don't really know him or even care for him. They're polite to him, but the attention that Sunday morning is all toward the other man. It's a situation, a hypothetical situation that we can grasp. And maybe your immediate reaction and response as you hear that opening illustration is to sort of internally shake your head at the the prejudice that that has been shown between from a church between two two men. No church is is perfect no person is perfect, and, and we know that yet this attitude of showing favoritism is regrettably all too prevalent and alive in in my life, in our lives, and indeed in the church of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, showing favoritism, showing partiality, creating distinctions with people is just way too natural for you and for me. See, we live in a world where, where unfortunately uh, discrimination is rife. Where, however you want to coin it, however you want to label it, is so prevalent. And unfortunately, uh, the Christian church has come to accept it in some situations as, as normal uh, protocol. Maybe situations, issues, historical occasions come flooding to your memory once I mention that. Yet what the the Apostle James wants to say to to these dispersed first century Christians as he wrote to them 2,000 years ago, and equally to us today in 2020 in Cumber, is that there is no place, there is no tolerance to be had in the church of Jesus Christ when it comes to the matter of showing favoritism. I'm sure you can get a grasp as we've read those verses. For James, this was not merely a matter of opinion. This was not a, a trivial issue he was, he was handling. As we just consider the amount of space and words that James devotes to this issue, it clearly suggests that he is not thinking merely um, hypothetically as some sort of like foreign um, um, uh, situation that has taken place, but this was a, a real and present danger that needed tackling. And the reason why it needed tackling and it needed James to talk about it for, is for this overriding reason that by showing favoritism. Partiality, creating distinctions, however you want to uh, label it, however it's said in in your Bible, ultimately reveals our hearts. And more specifically, it reveals what our hearts value. What we think is important. What we show favor to, whatever we are partial to, whether it's good or bad, is what we think is important. We can say this right at the beginning of our time this morning, and I say this uh, graciously, hopefully, that we need to to get this, um, that it needs to sink deep down into us, into our beings, into our souls. And it's this, by showing favoritism to one person over another on the grounds of, of wealth, on status, on power, on influence, and the list goes on, undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it ultimately fails to display the true nature of God himself if we do that and we we say that we are his. So this morning, uh, what I want to do, and what we're going to do is consider uh, just four glorious reminders that James has um, highlighted in these verses that, that will lead the church to live free from favoritism and toward a life shaped um, by the gospel. We're not going to really run through this verse by verse. We're just going to look at sort of key verses, uh, four glorious reminders that James has that will lead the church away from favoritism and toward a life shaped um, by the gospel. And here's the first, here's the first uh, glorious reminder that James has. And it's to be captivated uh, by the glory of Christ. Read verse 1 with me again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord uh, of glory. Here's the command, uh, the essence of what uh, the the apostle wants uh, to say to us. And in one sense, James could, could end right here. He could just sort of say verse 1, and, and that's it. That's the command. That's what we, we need to do. But what follows reveals the heart of the, of the problem. And ultimately, how, how favoritism contradicts a life that says they have been saved by grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. Very simply put, favoritism should not be an attribute of a follower of Jesus. It cannot be present. And the heart of what is going on when we show favoritism is profoundly captured by James in how he actually refers to Jesus. There's only actually two references made by James of of his half-brother, Jesus, and his Saviour. We find it in the first verse in chapter 1, and we find it in the first verse in chapter 2. How does James refer to Jesus? He says, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory. Showing favoritism is all about glory. It is about mis." Placing glory. It is about directing glory ultimately away from Jesus and toward people and things who receive special honor that they are simply not due, while the Lord of glory receives none. Let's consider the scenario in verses 2 to 4, which is really what this um, passage is, is fairly famous and well known for. And the setting that, that James employs is the worship service, as we've already considered in our opening introduction. And he brings back the reoccurring theme of, of rich and poor. And if you know anything about James, that's littered throughout this this letter. James makes a lot of references to the rich and and to the poor. That was a as a as an ongoing issue that was going on in these these churches he was he was writing to. And James refers to a scenario that was actually taking place in the churches he was writing to. We, we don't know for sure, but the, the situation he writes about, the scenario in verses 2 to 4, this is possibly one that took place, and even more so, this is possibly a situation that James witnessed himself. That's why he speaks about it in detail. The rich were receiving special attention over the poor, who were quite simply being treated as second-rate citizens. Now, immediately we hear that, and uh, just like the opening illustration, uh, we all respond in disapproval, and we sort of maybe have these thoughts. How could could believers of Jesus, regenerate Christians, act in such a shallow and dehumanizing manner? Let's think about, and let me pose another scenario um, to you. Though it's hypothetical, let's, let's engage with it. Next Sunday morning, we come to this lovely building for our our family service at 11 11 a.m. And a lady walks into our service here at Cumber Baptist Church. But she arrives 10 minutes late. She walks in halfway through the kids' talk. Quickly, people look at her and notice her, and they realize that she's, she's dressed rather scantily. And you, ha- you look at her and you have not seen as many tattoos on one human being before. You didn't think it was possible for one human being to have as many tattoos. And as she walks in, she- she's far from quiet. She seems to just sort of be bumping into things. And begins to make her way to the front of the church uh, to take uh, the only free seat that was left. What are your initial thoughts once that happens? What is going through your mind once you think of that, when you think of that individual? Is your initial thought, what a glorious image, Burr, that we we have just witnessed. We're so glad to have her in in our gathering this morning. And if those are your thoughts, praise God. I hope they are. But I would say most of us will be prone to the latter. And we think like, what in the world is she wearing? Does she not have a watch? Could she not show up in time? Why does she have to sit at the front? Could she not have taken a seat at the back? Why does she have to cause such a scene and draw attention to her? And we need to be uh, frank and honest here. There's no point uh, switching off at this at this point There's no point thinking about another person and thinking about how they need to hear this and be challenged by this this message. And what you and I need to ask is, where is the prejudice in our hearts? Where are we showing partiality? What type of person makes you uncomfortable? What type of person puts you on edge? If you're able to answer those questions honestly, more than likely, that's actually where your your prejudice lies. See, prejudice always reveals what is important in your heart. It reveals what you prize and cherish. And in James' scenario, what is most important is things, possession, and status. And this is is no light matter for James. And we read verse 4, and he says this, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves... And hear these words and become judges with evil thoughts see showing favoritism to one person over another because of their wealth status influence material goods is is sin it's nothing short nothing more it is sin according to james and this leads us on to the second reminder that james wants to teach us the person who who commits this sin of of favoritism has forgotten the gospel of God, and that is why we need to be gripped by the grace of Christ. As Christians, we have been we have been saved by, by the gospel of Jesus, that good news message, and therefore we are to be we are to be gripped, we are to be challenged, we are to live by that the finished work that we have received through Jesus Christ. Read verse five. I shared this in the in, in in our time of prayer beforehand. Verse five says this Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. And here is here's the the heartbeat. This is why favouritism exists in the church and in our lives. See, showing favoritism ignores the reality of the gospel according to James. That's why it exists. That's why it continues to live in churches and in our lives. If it was not for God choosing us in his mercy, where would you and I be? Believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you need to realize that you were poor. Spiritually speaking, you were, as Scripture clearly paints, you were dead. You were in need. You required divine outside help. And though you and I have been gloriously saved, that provides no justification for us to boast or to forget how we have been saved and our prior state before salvation, see the gospel message is is not just for for unbelievers. So, believer in Jesus Christ this morning, can I say to you that you need to be reminded daily of the good news of God? We need to hear constantly every week. That's why we the gospel is preached every week here in Cumber. That Jesus came to die for the poor, the alienated, the rebel. And once we understand those words rightly, those words are us. That's who we were. And from that, we live out of that gospel narrative so that our lives would be shaped by that message. But on the flip side, if not, if we do not do that, we will quickly become conceited. And what was occurring in the churches that James was writing to would just as easily happen in our lives and possibly in our church. What was taking place is that the poor were being pushed to the side. They are being even more marginalized. And in all places, of all the places to be marginalized, they are being marginalized in the church of Jesus Christ. The very place that the poor and the needy should have been welcomed, embraced, and affirmed was the very place that they were being oppressed. They are being treated as second-class citizens to the rich within the church who are receiving special attention. And James isn't saying it was it's sinful to be rich. He isn't having a go at the rich people um, here in, in these verses. Um, but to make the response of the church even more absurd and ridiculous, look at what James says in verses six and seven. It says this, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? The very people who were receiving special treatment from the church were the very ones who were oppressing them, dragging them into court and just overall blaspheming the name of God. And surely that reveals The deeper longings of the hearts of the believers James was writing to. They were more concerned with pleasing people who in the world's eyes were strong and powerful rather than the poor and the needy. And surely that longing um, resides in our hearts as well. I wonder if you've, you've had these thoughts come once you've thought about church and maybe even just generally Christianity. Sort of think along the lines, if, if only we could get um, this this person to start coming to, to our church or, or that type of person... That that, that would appeal to so many. That would uh, attract to so many. That would make us feel so much better uh, about ourselves. So uh, let's try and get that type of person, that fitted person here into our church. Uh, Then it'd be so much, so much better. I remember, um, as a child, uh, most of you know, I absolutely uh, love football. And as a child going to uh, Portown Baptist, I had, a, as a six and seven-year-old, as a six and seven-year-old would think, in just absolute, the absolute ridiculous. I always used to think how great it would be if every Sunday a famous footballer would come to church. This was the thoughts that would go round in my head. I was obviously very connected in what was going on in the church service. But I genuinely had these thoughts that like, how great would it be? And for me, um, players like Ruud Van Nistelrooy, Roy Keane, David Beckham, Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard. How great would it be if they came to church? Because if they came to church, then half of Portadown would, would come to church. So this was, this was my sort of evangelistic mind uh, bubbling uh, within, within me. Uh, I, I would think if they would come, they, w- they would fill the church. And as, 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 as humorous and, and sort of uh, trivial as, as that is, um, I was thinking if, if we could just get that type of person into the church, that one sort of particular person, and for me, it was someone famous, powerful, influential, get them into the church, that would make the church brilliant. Everyone would flock. And that's exactly what the church needed. I'm sure you can see the problem with that. We can think if if only we had more people from, from that social status, from that background, from that educational context, then things would be better. But in those moments, what we are doing is we're looking at and we're ultimately prizing externals rather than that which is a person who is truly spiritual. And what we do in those moments is we're creating distinctions, unhealthy distinctions that really look at the flesh and nothing more. Let's consider our, our third glorious reminder that James has for us. And he's, he wants to say to us that we are to be devoted to the law of Christ devoted to the law of Christ James now emphasizes really the seriousness of this matter and his approach is twofold highlighting that showing favoritism breaks the the royal law of God that love God love neighbor and that by breaking just one of the commandments makes you guilty a transgressor of the law and what James is doing here is he's, he's actually taking his, his reader's mind's eye back to the, Le, Le, to the Levitical law, back to Leviticus 19. We hear words in Leviticus 19 like this, you, you shall not be partial to the poor, defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And then sort of another few words in verse 18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And what God was saying to to his ancient people, the Israelites, and to his chosen people, that they were to show no favoritism, but instead to to love their neighbors as themselves. And we know that to be true, and that's uh, continuing, obviously, into the New Covenant. Jesus reiterates that in the New Testament, as as we may know in in Matthew and Mark. So to keep this royal law is good. In the words of James, you, you are doing well. But if you feel and you show favoritism, then what James wants to say is, then you are a law breaker. And James is really bringing home the reality that creating distinctions is nothing short of sin, as we've considered already. And how we break this law is actually in two ways in how James writes to us. First is, favoritism disrespects your neighbor. The, the word favoritism, in the original language, New Testament is written in in ancient Greek, it means to, literally it means to receive according to the face, receive according to the face, or to put it in other words, to make judgments about people based on their external appearance. So let me ask you this morning, who who is your neighbour? And let me answer that question. Well, according to the Bible. It is any living and breathing human being. So clearly showing favoritism breaks the royal law as we are not, we are disrespecting our neighbor, our fellow humans. But the second way is is that favoritism dishonors God himself. Look back with me at, at, at verse seven and how James it condemns the rich. They were blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called, that honorable name of God. And showing favoritism, having a bias toward a particular people, creating distinctions based on education, ethnicity, or power, or whatever, all brings dishonor to God. So if we show favoritism, we are acting in direct contradiction to God. So James tells and informs us of a, a theological truth that all of us, I could make the broad assumption, know but we need to fully grasp is that if you break one law, one of the many laws, then you break the entire law and ultimately have offended the one who gives the law. And then James brings about this, this topic of judgment in verse 12. And that might seem like a bit of a red herring once once you read that. He said, what's he, what's he getting on that? And James is reminding the Christian here that there is a judgment that that they will face. That might bring alarm bells into your head. Not an ultimate judgment that the the unbeliever will face when they will be banished from the, the presence of God, but a judgment in relation to how we have lived our lives. Don't really talk about this, do we? And we sort of, obviously we're going to, Not face the full wrath of God through his grace. But there is a judgment that will come to to Christians in how we have lived our lives outside because and in response of the grace we have received. But one day you and I will will give an account for our lives. And James is warning these these dispersed Christians that God will inquire about their discriminatory acts. But what about us? Think with me about the words of Jesus in Matthew 12. He says this I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Stark words. Surely those words from, from our Lord should make us think twice about how we speak, our conduct. Our actions, the words we said uh, to others about others, what we put on social media, it should make us think twice, because we are a people who have received mercy, and our simple response, and what James is getting at here, is that we are to extend that mercy. And that brings us to our fourth and final glorious reminder. We are to reflect the mercy of Christ. The message of the gospel, very simply, is that every human being is in need of mercy. And the implicit message that's just sort of weaving its way through these verses from James is that all of us are poor and needy. Christian this morning as you have have received divine mercy you are called to extend that onto others but on the other side of the coin what James is getting at here is this is that if we do not extend mercy we demonstrate that we have actually potentially not received mercy or at least We have not grasped the mercy that we have received. Now James is not endorsing a a works form of of righteousness. Some sort of like if, if you show enough mercy then you can earn God's mercy. He's not getting at that. No what James is saying here is that you're able to tell who has received mercy of Jesus by the way They show mercy to their neighbors. And that is a huge challenge for us to consider this morning. How you live demonstrates whether you have grasped the grace of the gospel. It's able to tell a watching world whether you're authentic and whether it's real in your life as we close the topic of of mercy which which james brings about at the end of this little section that we've considered this morning brings us back to actually the start of this section and the start of this section more than likely isn't actually verse one of chapter two um, chapters and verses were included many many years later they're not they're not inspired but really the The best way to think of this, the start of this section, is the last verse of chapter 1, verse 27, where we consider authentic religion. And if mercy resides in the heart of a true believer, then mercy will be extended in their thoughts, words, and actions. And this idea of favoritism, partiality, will just simply not be present and as a, as a good and a loving pastor, James is pointing these believers in the direction of true and authentic Christianity. And what's that? What's well, verse 27 of chapter 1? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is authentic Christianity in action. Christianity that has truly been transformed by the life-changing message of the gospel. Marked by purity. Concerned about the well-being of others. And unstained by the thinking of the world which contradicts the gospel. Would we be people as individuals, but would we be people as a collective body as a church that would show no partiality, but that we would follow and obey the royal law of God in loving him and loving our neighbor. Let's pray. No partiality. Our God, as we as we just take a moment to reflect our lives and we acknowledge our 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 condition, our helpless states—how we are poor and needy—and Lord, we give you our praise how you, how you have intervened to save us from our our spiritual plight. And Lord, we we thank you, and we cannot thank you enough for saving us. But in that, Lord, would we not boast in our in in our in our in our on our, our, our righteousness? for our own sake and for our own glory but lord we'd be mindful of how you've saved us and where you've taken us from and lord as as we think of that that we would allow your word to shape our lives and how we would be mindful of others lord that we would be searching our own hearts and we would be allowing you to work in us to reveal where our, our bias lies, where we have our favoritism, where we show partiality on a day-in and day-out basis. Lord, would you strip that away from us? Would we be a people as individuals and as a church who would love all, who would extend mercy to all, regardless of who they are, the influence, the power, the authority, their ethnicity, whatever the case may be, Lord, that we would see them as people who need the gospel. And we'd be reminded that you looked on us as poor needy and saved us in our condition. Lord, help us to be good ambassadors, representatives, and that we would be people who would receive mercy and extend that mercy onto others. For the sake of Christ, and in his name we pray, amen.